Hello everybody, June here. Before we start, I thought I would give you a quick heads up on this episode. One, it's been a while since we released, and yes, this podcast is still live, we're just taking a little time to get every episode right. Also, my work-life balance sucks. The episode that you're about to listen to was recorded live on stream at twitch.tv backslash gamecrimes with a chat, and as such, you're going to hear us mention some chat members or particular user at some point in time. One thing you may need to know about this recording, we did have some issues with the audio files themselves. My microphone hiccup in the middle of the recording, and since we were live on stream, we just decided to go with a headset mic, which, while this episode is clear, does have some pops and occasional peaks. We did our best to clean it up, but uh, sorry about that. Will not happen again. Also, Mike happened to lose his audio that he recorded on his end, which means Mike's audio in this episode is ripped directly from the stream. I did my best to make it coherent, but every once in a while you might hear me talking over him because of that. I still think this is a darn good episode and one that I'm very proud of. So kick back, relax, get ready for Game Crimes Episode 7, and thanks. It's nice to see you again. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Game Crimes, the podcast that looks into the black market history of the video game industry. Did you miss us? I missed us a whole heck of a lot. This podcast covers a lot of topics, and tonight it's a hot one. It's a weird one. If you have a tinfoil hat, I strongly encourage you to get it out of the closet and get that thing refitted to your dome. Because today we'll be talking about the world of white-collar crime in video games, and using the example of Japanese development company SNK as an example. Before we get too deep, I need to introduce y'all, if you don't know, my co-host, my partner in crime here, Mikey Bachman. How are you doing tonight, Mike? Pretty good. And you know what? I, I'm going to blow the lid off of the whole white-collar crime industry right now. Did you know that if you buy like a blue shirt, a blue collared shirt, it's just white fabric that they dyed. It's all, it's, they're all white collars. I gotta rewrite this entire fucking thing now. That really changes my perspective. People are going to fucking jail. <laughs> all right, well, since people are going to fucking jail, y'all better strap in and get ready for this episode. It's Game Crimes Episode 7, SNK, VC, and MBS.
SNK was founded in 1973, the three-letter acronym being short for Shin Nihon Kikaku. Like many Japanese game companies, SNK wandered around in the arcade market and scored a handful of smaller hits, games you might know like Akari Warriors, Athena, or Alpha Mission. It wasn't until 1988 that SNK's R&D division created a concept that would go on to define the company's identity to this very day, a multi-game arcade machine known as the Neo Geo. The Neo Geo represented a huge sea change for the arcade business. Prior to development of cartridge systems, arcade games and cabinets were made for one game and one game only. Developers might sell conversion kits to help arcade owners recoup on a flopped game, but the Neo Geo ensured that every cabinet owner could get the newest SNK games as soon as they were released. The Neo Geo multi-video system would become a permanent fixture in arcades far beyond Japan, far beyond the US, and even far beyond Europe. Quick question, Mike. Did you get your hands on one of those bright red MVS arcade machines when you were younger? I did, yeah. There was a um there was one in a hotel that had like a had like a community pool attached to it. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, I went in, they they had one it was pretty rare that I was able to get get my hands on it and actually play something. But I remember like SNK games just being this weird thing where like a lot of the arcade games that I saw had had home versions, but without really knowing what I was looking at at the time, it was just like these kind of like mysterious games that came out of nowhere that seemed really intricate and really, really beautiful. A lot of these Neo Geo games look awesome today, frankly with how intricate the sprite work is and how much attention is paid to the way it looks. Yeah, it's a testament to art direction, for sure. In this episode, I want to state fully that I'm going to be using a lot of quotations because, one, we're going to be quoting numbers and finances, and that's not something you should really roll the dice on. But also, two, I want to make sure that this is a narrative that is supported by actual facts and reporting, and I think that using quotations is the best way to do it. Without further ado, I'd like to share a piece from Jeffrey Wilson, um, who wrote a retrospective on the Neo Geo for Polygon. And I think the quote really sums up my experience at the very least. I and millions of other kids pumped a lot of money into the MVS machines. It was easy to do because MVS machines were everywhere during the 1990s. Thanks to the MVS's multi-game design, many public-facing businesses, from bodegas to laundromats to pizza shops, became four game arcades in a single cabinet's footprint. The arcade was no longer a specific place. The arcade was everywhere. That, to me, more than anything else, the the idea of the arcade expanding beyond the dingy corner of the mall is really what I associate those MVS machines with. Because even though I grew up in, like, I wouldn't say the middle of nowhere, but a smaller town in Michigan, you know, there were still three or four MVS machines around town, and I knew every single one of them and what was in it. How are they priced compared to getting like a single game arcade cabinet? If you were buying a multi-video system cabinet, I think it was slightly more expensive than a stock cabinet, but it did usually come with a game. And then the cartridges themselves were way cheaper than the boards, like buying a new board entirely. So it was it was sort of like you invest a little more upfront, and then the more cartridges you buy, the more profit you make. Compare that to like the way a lot of companies did it, something at the time, where like if you bought a an arcade machine and you didn't like it or it was unsuccessful, you could only replace it with one other game, possibly, and that's kind of determined by the company that manufactures it. It's called the conversion kit. 
And because not every game can be converted to another game, you very much had your hands tied. Whereas this was just as easy as like picking a cartridge up, putting it back in. Sometimes there were, if I if I'm recalling correctly, sometimes there were, there were like updates to games and things like that. But you, that would require like a technician coming out and like you know flashing an EEPROM or soldering a new chip onto the board altogether. Like it mm-hmm. was, uh, it, it was it was pretty involved. And when, for instance, Metal Slug Two had shipped with game breaking bugs, they were just able to ship a revised version of Metal Slug in a new cartridge instead of having to worry about any of that mess. At the same time that in, in the U.S., the arcade was kind of sort of diversifying into the broader economy, in Japan, the arcade was actually kind of consolidating. There is an interview with a bunch of SNK designers, uh, Eurogamer in 2021, and one of the head designers, uh, Naoto Abe, has a quote that I think is really illustrative of what was going on in Japan at the time. Quote, in the 80s, you had the bubble economy in Japan. And all industry was riding really high on that. But then in the 90s, it crashed. A lot of people were suddenly out of a job, and the economy tanked. They didn't really have a lot of money. And so a lot of people found themselves investing a lot more time into games and going to arcade centers. Even though Japan experienced the end of a bubble economy, the games industry was actually doing really, really well. It didn't experience the same kind of implosion like what happened with the states in the game crash in 1983. So I think that's a a really important thing to note here is that a lot of the time the community and the culture for these games in Japan is very location-based, right? Like you have to go to an arcade to play KOF 96, whereas the arcade and experience for a lot of people in the U.S. is just going to be what you do when you're bored at Pizza Hut. SNK was always very healthy in the Japanese arcade market for that reason, whereas when it expanded into the U.S., its success was a little less predictable which games got over which games didn't personally i remember the bubble economy people were like buying bubbles they were selling bubbles people were blowing (laughs) bubbles and then when all the bubbles were gone what are you gonna do there's nothing to play with you go play video games you got all these new age tricksters and they're inventing you know gadgets like a bubble gun well what's wrong with a good old-fashioned wand i heard there was even a bubble boy Do you associate any games in particular with playing the big old red demon? I mean, for me, it's like Samurai Showdown and Metal Slug. Oh, like Neo Drift Out. The arcade racer, the like isometric one? Yeah, because that had a wheel on it, didn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember remember spinning that wheel and going around turns and stuff. Other than that, uh, Metal Slug, I think, is the one that I came across the most often. Absolutely. I think that's going to be a lot of people's experience. Not much KOF, which like it, it shocked me when I got older, how many KOF games there were never having run into this town of like 2000 people was like where I spent most of my time. And, you know, we had we had the small Walmart that had a Gauntlet Legends <laughs> you know, arcade machine in the lobby. But other than that, when I was younger, I had like a, a notebook and I would carry it with me because my parents loved to like road trip for a weekend. And I would write down where I saw arcade games. The first time I saw King of Fighters was in Pentwater, Michigan, which I think is probably like a town of two to 3,000 people. And so I immediately associated it with that location. But I went to bigger places like Ann Arbor, Lansing, Chicago, and never saw a KOF game. Some places you might have had the same two or three games, and they're collecting dust forever. But, you know, if you had an active arcade community, then those Neo Geo machines would be swapped in and out of new cartridges constantly. Yeah, jealous of those communities for sure. 
SNK's prolific design division pushed out state-of-the-art 2D arcade games, quickly associating the hardware with lightning-fast dynamism, vibrant colors, and intricate animation. While some of the games in the system are simply wonderful, creative interpretations of familiar genres, like the space shooter Pulse Star or the living miracle of a golf game, Neo Turf Masters, many of the games in the Neo Geo were pushing the boundaries of the fighting game genre, and pretty quickly this genre is what SNK became associated with. SNK's rosters of fighting games represent the company's bread and butter, expressively animated games with unique aesthetics and finely tuned for competitive play. While Art of Fighting and Fatal Fury may have begun as riffs on Street Fighter II, these two series went on to release uh, several unique games within the genre. And what if the two series mixed in a crossover? Well, if you combine that with character designs cribbed from Osaka Street fashion, you get the genesis of King of Fighters being made. You can throw Athena and some Akari Warriors in there, too. But maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you want to play a game in 1600s Japan, or 2030 Kansas City, or a, a fighting game based around a wedding. There's a Neo Geo game for every single one of those. From the same Eurogamer interview, SNK designer Nobuyuki Kuroki highlights how and why this company always seemed a little different. Compared to now, whenever you want to make a fighting game or any game in general, even when just making one character, you need so many modelers and so many animators. You need people to look at the different type of industries in China and America. You need financial planners and all that stuff. But back then, as long as you got an artist, a planner, and a programmer, that was basically all you needed. You could make a game with a really small amount of people. And so long as the people in that team had the uniqueness to themselves and some bombastic personalities, then you crank out a bunch of memorable games. I think that's a really good point, actually, that doesn't come up when we think about retro games versus modern games, is the fact that these games are likely made with only a staff of a handful of people, five to ten people tops. It's very similar to, to indie space and what indie space looks like now, but these were considered to be AAA titles at the time. Think about the scale there. I mean, we're going to start talking figures later on, but this sounds a lot more like a fun little record label than it does like a serious development company. You find that with a, like a lot of a lot of game studios in the 90s. I've, um, I looked kind of deep. We can we can cut all this because I don't think it's going to be super interesting. But I talked to some people who worked on uh, Beavis and Butthead Virtual Stupidity. I don't know if I ever told you that. I don't know if you have. The story behind that was there was like a, there was like an Easter egg. I, th I mentioned it to you, but for the Twitch chat, there's a an Easter egg where you can go into the bathroom, you can click on certain points in the mirror, and butthead the walk to the center of the room. Butthead pulls out a shotgun. He goes, goes fuck you, Beavis, and like blows Beavis's head off. What? It, it, they beep it because they're using some <laughs> other line that Mike Judge recorded to like splice that together, and. <laughs> my buddy remembered seeing it in a magazine at some point but we couldn't find where that magazine was he so we couldn't and we couldn't find anything online that was like this is how you do it so he he figured it out through brute force so i ended up talking to one of the, one of the guys he actually let slip that there were some other easter eggs in there and oh the, like unfound ones uh yeah they've been found now um somebody okay. else so like my buddy put a video of the shotgun thing on youtube after he figured it out other people like from, from like other videos referenced that one. Somebody else went back and talked to the same person later and he gave them the he gave them how to do the other Easter eggs. This is like a few years after I had talked to him. That kind of stuff always makes the game seem more like a personal project. So that's that's what I was getting at, is that it was this small group, uh small group of people and they can just be like, Yeah, let's 
let's like throw this little throw a little Easter egg in there or something. And it's like nobody's going to notice because like the people that are the people that are there sh are shelling out the money aren't really paying attention to what we're doing. Yeah, they just want to see that final project. And at that point in time, video games were in a position financially where it was not a, like it wasn't common for people to invest a big amount of money in them. So, you know, these were smaller studios, smaller projects. The profit margins were smaller. By the end of the 90s, SNK had made its mark on the world, whether from their unique arcade games or the numerous, uh, sometimes janky console ports. They were never the most successful or well-financed game company, but they had a captive audience and a creative team that defined the look of fighting games for the next 30 years. So why am I bringing them up on a crime podcast? Here I am, peoples, just hanging out at the factory where they make these Neo Geo multi-video systems. Now, what these things are is that you can play four different games on this machine. But that's not all. I got another surprise for you. Da-da-da-da-da! You start playing your game. Oh, wow, you're doing great. But look, it's 6 o'clock and you're going to be late for dinner. What are you going to do? Here's what you're going to do. the time machine and head back to 1969. Right as the decade was turning over, a man named Kazuo Okada founded a Japanese company named Universal Entertainment. Okada's goal with this company was to move into gambling machines such as slots and pachinko. He was inspired to start this company upon a trip to the Vegas Strip. And by the 1980s, Universal Entertainment had become a name brand in gambling facilities around the world, with subsidiaries in the U.S. and Korea. This just goes to show you that if you're going to run a game company, you're either going to start in Pachinko or you're going to end in Pachinko. <laughs> ashes to ashes, Pachinko to Pachinko. Interestingly enough, Universal also manufactured a handful of arcade games. Minor obscurities like Space Panic and Mr. Do. But the company's real money was in Pachinko and Patchy Slot, which is like a modified version of Pachinko with a slot machine element. Pachinko is an interesting parlor game largely known for its widespread prevalence in Japan. More importantly for this story, though, Pachinko is big, 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 big money. And how much money? The Financial Times estimates the value of the industry as a whole to be somewhere around 30 trillion yen. And if you need a conversion, that's $264 billion. That's going to buy you a lot of Neo Geo games. That's a shitload of money for lack of a better way to put it. You know, no video game companies are, are slinging around that kind of money unless they're EA level. Gambling is obviously a, a different market than video games, but I think it's important to keep these things in context because they are, these worlds are going to start meshing together pretty quick here soon. Like casinos and sports betting, these are high-stakes markets with a lot of physical currency being exchanged back and forth every day. How did this unique cultural phenomenon become so large in the first place? Largely due to its history steeped in organized crime. One interesting element of the pachinko industry, and wider pachinko culture in general, is that most pachinko parlors that operate in Japan have historically been operated by Korean Japanese, or uh, folks from Korea or expatriates or migrants from Korea who moved into Japan in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. The complex relationship between Japan and Korea is infinitely too detailed to go into here. But in the time period that we're talking about, especially as the rise of pachinko is coming, Historically, the Korean Japanese have struggled with a lot of racism, cultural oppression, you know, right down to like street harassment. Hmm. I'd like to move over to a piece by 
Andrew Rankin, which is entitled Recent Trends in Organized Crime in Japan, Yakuza versus the Police and Foreign Crime Gangs. I chose Rankin's piece here because it details the complex interconnected nature between Korean pachinko parlors, Yakuza organized crime units, and police corruption that is endemic to pachinko culture during the 70s. I'm doing my best to give you a very distilled version here, but if you get a chance to seek out Rankin's piece, I highly recommend it. It's important for the context of our story to distinguish between the different types of crime going on at the time. Many Korean Japanese are marginalized to the complete fringes of Japanese society, find a way to survive by establishing pachinko parlors and organized crime at the same time, sometimes separately, sometimes together. Cash made from the pachinko industry is used by these organized crime groups to launder money, and also sometimes sent home as remittances to, uh, to Korea. Police departments are endemic with corruption from organized crime in Japan during this time, often harassing the Korean Japanese communities and pachinko parlor owners at the time. The New York Times makes a claim in 2014 that at least 75% of pachinko parlor owners are Korean Japanese, which shows you how long this has been around. I mean, we're talking 2015 versus the 1950s. I'm bringing this up here because pachinko is considered a gray industry in Japan, kind of like you might consider Vegas kind of a gray industry. It's got kind of a reputation of being shady, I think might be the best way to put it, you, you know, as fair or unfair as that may be. Yeah, it's got yeah. that that kind of vibe. And then there's like definitely the like the whole casino, like casino scene in general is just, you know, kind of a shady practice. Yeah, exactly. And that, I mean, not every casino or person that works in a casino is like that, but it has a reputation. So I think the question is, if Pachinko's been around for so long and it's so big, then why is it still a gray industry? Why does it still have this negative reputation if it's so damn popular, especially in Japan? Any industry, gambling is a great example here, that moves a lot of pieces of currency around, a lot of cash gets moved around, has natural vulnerabilities to the ability to find or track that currency. Or to maybe put it more succinctly, it's a totally ball in place to do a bunch of money laundering. The Yakuza's massive money laundering operations in the 60s and 70s extended really far beyond pachinko into several spheres such as construction and, and food preparation. But pachinko remained a key feature of their business until the 80s. Anti-Yakuza sentiment that had been raising since the 80s saw an overwhelming force of police taking over these pachinko parlors, and now most pachinko attendants are ex-police officers. We swap from organized crime straight to cops. I mean, it's just like a like a civil forfeiture kind of situation. Like a, I'm trying I'm trying to understand like the because I mean here something seized by a police it's usually going to go up in like a police auction or something, uh, right. and maybe somebody like so if if pachinko was big here and the same type of thing was happening it would be auctioned off somebody would come and buy it and you'd have other people but it's not usually police that are buying up those things. No, not really. And the police serve an interesting role because they could be serving active police officers or they could be retired police officers, right? And either way, they would still have connections to that old department, even if they didn't formally work there. The way Rankin describes it, using the quote here, is one complicating factor is the prevalence of bribery and protection agreements and other forms of collusion that exist between the police and the Yakuza. Police officers may expect or demand free drinks or service in bars, clubs, and sex business within a gang's territory. The gang may offer these things free to the police, whether they demand it or not. 
In return, police officers often ignore minor legal violations or ignore a raid in another gang's territory. There's also a long tradition of plea bargaining, known in Yakuza slang as chinkoro, where gang members give the police information in exchange for leniency, aka snitching. All such arrangements are said to have become less frequent and less dependable in recent years. The police in this case have an interest to be inter interconnected with the Yakuza and the Pachinko company, not necessarily to press down on it, but to have more of an environment where, you know, they're allowed to cut. Not not at all like here. <laughs> I don't know a ton about the role of cops in Vegas, other than apparently they're not very good. One thing that happens in pachinko parlors is that it's a, it's technically illegal to gamble. So when you do well in pachinko, you win like a little trinket, like a, a stuffed animal or whatever. And then you can bring that trinket like literally next door and exchange it for cash. And a lot of the time, the, the police officer is the one working at the transaction station or that is, you know, just like sitting outside of the pachinko parlor and being general security. Why are you paying $7,000 for a McDonald's toy? <laughs> It really is, though, like that you can get like a little like, I don't know, like a matchbox or something and then go and sell it to the store basically for like a, a grand or whatever. And the whole point, as long as you're selling something, it's OK. Huh. Rankin also mentions cases where police officers forewarn local gang bosses about impending police raids. And those are still being reported. A Hokkaido detective who held the police record for most firearms confiscated in a single year eventually confessed that he cut a deal with the Hakodate Yakuza gang. They gave him the guns, and in return, he pretended not to notice their two-ton shipment of cannabis and meth. In 2008, as many as 23 detectives and inspectors in the anti-Yakuza squad of the Aichi Police Department were implicated in a bribery scandal involving the Blue Group, a Nagoya-based federation of brothel owners and money lenders with strong ties to the Kodokai. Not Blue Man Group. That's very yes. important. Yeah, we, we have no proof that the Blue Man Group is uh, up to anything other than uh, throwing paint around, and they're great at it. But we have no proof that they didn't do this either. Don't sue us, Blue Man Group. I don't want to have to join your organization. I don't like paint. paint. <laughs> They're not suing for money. They're suing for you to join. Yeah. It's like a wrestling storyline. It's like, we hate you, and that's why you're joining our group. <laughs> and then you have to become a Blue Man Group for like five years. Why, why, hasn't, why hasn't there been a Blue Man Group like tag team? <laughs> Actually, that'd be sick. There's yeah. no good. Yeah, yeah, I'm on board with that. Because it could be literally anybody. You know, you could just like make it a story. Be like, they come out, they're silent. <laughs> they do the promo at the beginning. They, somebody hands them a mic in the ring and they just walk around with it held up to their face. <laughs> saying nothing. There's a tag team match and one of them sits on the apron just doing a big drum. Just throwing pain everywhere. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, please. I'm down for this. Hood slam. Please call us. We have ideas. So I've given you a bunch of context about the pachinko industry, about how it's connected to organized crime and how police are also connected to organized crime through the same industry and also others. I gave you this context so that we can talk about Aruse, the company I brought up earlier. Aruse is a game and gambling company with a very interesting history and an even more interesting chairman. And I've made a brief timeline through the life of him, his, his name being Kazuo Okada. Most of this info is pulled from a handful of Financial Times articles and news briefs. There's like 15 of them, and they're all like a paragraph long. So I've tried to assemble some info there, including an interview with the man himself. 1942. Okada was born in 1942, three years before Japan's defeat in the Second World War. To support his widowed mother, he entered engineering vocational school, taking advantage of his knack for mechanics. 
It was clear that Okada had a knowledge of electronics, televisions, and vacuum tube technology at a young age. This guy sounds like a regular Mike Bachman, if you ask me. <laughs> I, I've, <laughs> I've heard of vacuum tubes. So, yeah, we're pretty much the same. We're the same guy. <laughs> yeah, the, the, I got up my my vacuum's got a long tube on it. I use it to suck up all the dust and debris. Yeah, you're right. I'm a tube guy. Yeah, I'm you a called tube me guy. Out yeah, me and Okada, we're both tube guys. <laughs> Maybe I'll start up one of them video gaming companies myself. <laughs> Just we're going to get a few tubes together. We're going to make a video game. <laughs> new, new type of guy discovered, tube guy. I like tube guy. Yeah. He's got a lot of energy. I'm proud to be a tube guy. 1969. Then known as Universal Lease at age 27. His projects were widespread failures due to quality control issues. Okada was struggling until he visited Las Vegas in 1969 alongside colleagues in the gambling industry. To quote the man himself, after I experienced that American wealth, I decided I wanted to build slot machines. I brought back the oldest slot machine, took it apart to study its structure, and then copied it. Straight up. He's just basically admitting to stealing someone else's design. Kind of baller. It's not good, but it, it, it takes some guts. Why do you pick the oldest one just so that it was less likely that somebody would come after him for it? Or Either that or he just didn't have a lot of money. Because I think he had tried two machines before them and they were both massive failures due to like defect issues. Gotcha. They just stopped working. I think he just needed something that worked, <laughs> frankly. 1983. By the mid-80s, Okada's business had become an international gambling all-star. And by the late 80s, the Financial Times estimated that his company controlled about 75% of the slot machine market in Nevada. Not in Japan, Nevada. In 1989, gaming authorities in Nevada cracked down on Universal's machines, claiming that they were illegal due to unfair gambling algorithms. The company left the U.S. market soon after. But corruption charges be damned, Okada's Universal Group expanded rapidly at home, supplying machines to Japan's pachinko industry. By 1999, Okada had become the largest individual taxpayer in Japan. Probably worth pointing out, my hunch is that when they say unfair gambling algorithms unfair is like the legal definition and yes. what is actually legal is still unfair by a reasonable definition <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so if it was bad enough that the law considered it unfair you're in this position where you own a gambling company and you have a full u.s division and you own 75 percent of the machines in casinos at the time and you have to shut it all down in one year like you withdraw from that industry entirely in the u.s that big of a market share why is it not just like oh we'll fix it and then you drag it out in like the courts while you're making money this whole time you know yeah yeah i i can't speak to it because literally they just closed the u.s division and just kind of started investing in other countries basically they're just like oh you got us fair share <laughs> bye peace out bye <laughs> What did the 25% of the market do? They're just like, <gasps> <laughs> you know, honestly, there's I, some of the things I've read suggested that that was a, a little more what might have been going on at the time. What, because we're talking the mid 80s. There's a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment in this country from the, the right wing and, and manufacturing districts. So here's a foreign company that controls a bunch of our economy. And it's not surprising to hear that they crack down on this company instead of, I don't know, any other 
number of corrupt, shitty companies involved yeah, in the that's, game. Industry. That's fair. There, on the other hand, the more that you learn about Mr. Okada, the more it makes sense because this man's got a fucking history and a future. 1998. Relevant here because the Universal Sales Co. Limited merged with a distribution center in Nevada called Distributing of Nevada and changed the name of the company to Aruz Company Limited, which is what we will be calling this company by now. One, because Aruz is a cool name, and two, that's the, the name of the company when it starts interacting with SNK. It looks like somebody at Microsoft misspelled Azure. Oops, I created... You wanted me to create Azure LTD? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, it's my second day. Mirnoth says in chat, Unfair may have been a case of false advertising. Modern gotcha games frequently get busted for not adhering to their stated percent chances. That is an excellent point. There is a legal standard for this stuff, and some of it does have to do with advertising. 2005, Okada, now a billionaire, invests around $380 million over two years in Wynn Resorts, who, if you're unaware, is like one of the other huge names in Vegas, the, who own several casinos and hotels. That's Wynn Resorts, by the way, as in Steve Wynn, who is ousted from his company due to several sexual assault allegations. 2007. Goldman Sachs takes a 9% ownership of Aruz slash Universal. If you're unfamiliar with Goldman Sachs, look up the 2008 housing market crisis, and you'll have plenty of reasons to get upset at them. God, that's what happened. This wouldn't have happened if they hadn't bought the slot business. It's one year before it. I, I mean, I can't really blame it on that, but can you not blame it on Each that? Each domino is one domino before the last, my friend. <laughs> what a confusing saying. <laughs> I would say that if I was in a conversation with someone and then I wanted to just like immediately walk away. <laughs> this has nothing to do with what you... Absolutely. 2012. Okada is investigated by the Philippines Department of Justice under allegations that bribes were paid to obtain a license for a $2 billion casino. 2012, same year. Okada is accused by Steve Wynn of spending $135 million in an illegal donations by the casino to the University of Macau. What? Oh, okay. Invest. I, I was thinking that he bought Wynn Resorts, and I was like, why the fuck is Steve Wynn still paying attention to what he's doing? <laughs> it's like checking his browser history. Oh, wait a minute. I'm letting you buy my company, but I have a slap on the wrist rule where if I don't like what you're doing, I'm just going to yell at you. <laughs> Literally get to slap you on your wrist. Book a flight. By the way, $135 million to a university is absurd. That is absurd. That's an absurd amount of money. Get like a like a hall named after you, at least, you know. Now, 2013, the Hong Kong Justice Department announces that Okada is under further investigation for the lack of accounting for millions of dollars of payments for business in Manila. 2018, Okada is arrested by Hong Kong's main corruption watchdog in his business dealings. The arrest comes after Mr. Okada was ousted from his company in June by his own children after he was accused of misappropriating $20 million in company funds. Wow. Imagine being owned by your own kids to that level. I honestly, honestly, I can only hope that I'm raising kids that would send me to jail. <laughs> Somebody's got to stop me. <laughs> and it's got to be the ones that know me best. <laughs> I'm, buying my, I'm buying my daughter a very cool leather jacket. <laughs> So if you were wondering where the crime is in this story, there's a lot of crime going on here from this pachinko company that is also censured by the Nevada government 
and the CEO and founder of eventually gets thrown in prison for bribery and embezzlement charges. It's in this context that I would like you to consider the following. In 2001, a ruse initiates a hostile takeover of SNK when the company is at its most vulnerable. Shady <laughs> financial things never happen in Manila. <laughs> yeah, it's actually known for being super chill. So we've got our base to work from. SNK was ruling the arcades at the same time that Pachinko's fortunes were reaching new heights. Now let's talk about the fall. First things first, it is impossible to talk about the failure of SNK without mentioning several bad business decisions. Contrary to popular belief, making a Neo Geo home console was not one of these mistakes. Due to the pricing of the console and the games, there's a certain perception these days that the system was unsuccessful due to its price. One thing for certain, it wasn't a blockbuster. Damian McFerrin at Tech Radar estimates that SNK shipped fewer than 1 million home consoles. But games produced for that system were produced until the mid-2000s, several years after the death of SNK itself. According to the same Eurogamer interview I mentioned earlier, the arcade accuracy really mattered to SNK's core audience due to the prevalence of arcade culture at the time. To quote designer Nobuyuki Kuroki, of course, everyone's initial reaction was, geez, that's expensive. You know, they were really shocked, and it was kind of ridiculous at that time. But for some players, the hardcore gamers, when you factor in how many times they go to the arcade, how many hundreds of dollars you're putting in to play every day, it actually made sense to buy a Neo Geo because you'd save money. At the time, there were even super hardcore players that would just buy the actual arcade cabinet of a game they really wanted and keep it in their home apartment. Now, they could pay a third of the price for a home console that functions the same. When you add into the equation that SNK can repackage their arcade cartridges into home versions with very little overhead, suddenly the Neo Geo makes a lot more sense as a low-risk way for SNK to move into new markets. If I remember correctly, there's not a lot of difference between the AES and the MBS other than, like, IO, it's just I.O. stuff, right? For the most part, home versions can have additional features that arcade versions may not, like a practice mode or something like that. Um, but for the most part, that's stuff that would have been designed during the design process. So, Is that stuff switched by the BIOS that it detects? I believe so. I believe so. Although that may not be the case with exactly every cartridge. Some people right. do convert arcade carts to home carts, and they aren't like one-to-one -one the same. Sure, um, sure, that makes sense. But since the actual cartridges and hardware they were shipping were just like the arcade machine, they could produce in bulk and just slightly adapt. And that would allow them to produce more of their arcade machines in bulk, bringing up their profit margins. I guess I, I haven't followed the market super closely, but like because the home, uh, the MVS is, would, is a little bit more expensive. Like some people were, for at least for a time, getting AES machines and just hooking it up to a super gun or whatever. Not only that, but a lot of the home versions were produced in extremely small numbers compared to the arcade. Finding a home version of Metal Slug is actually one of like the golden holy grails of Neo Geo collectors, but there are a billion Metal Slug arcade boards. Just get a mister. Yeah. So why, yeah, didn't, why didn't SNK 
Just build <laughs> misters. <laughs> Mirnaut says there was definitely an FPGA shortage at that at that point, so no mister. <laughs> that is better end than any joke we will be making tonight. The first sign of something going sideways over at SNK was the Neo Geo CD, designed to be a low-cost alternative to the home console version, but adding the loading times of a CD-based system. More features! The Neo Geo CD's disk drive read data at a notoriously slow 1x read rate, introducing 2-3 to three minute loading times to fast to arcadey blink-if-you-miss-it design. Some of the CD games had added content, such as CD-quality audio, but also often missed the full features of their arcade and home ports. There were only eight new games exclusive to the system, none of which were offered in the US or Europe, and the Western markets for the CD were already poisoned at that point. The lack of communication between the US and Japanese marketing departments of SNK led to an awkward situation of SNK marketing an upgraded, cheaper CD system called the CDZ, which halved the load times of the first model, at the same time as launching the first model in the US. The savvy SNK fan held onto their wallet and waited for the CDZ, and the US launch was a Titanic-level disaster. Ironically, an optical drive emulator was recently developed for the Neo Geo CD, which all but eliminates the load time on CD games, which makes for a pretty cheap setup if you're looking for originals hardware. This is such a common theme at this period of consoles, the shift from cartridge to CD with a Japanese arm and US arm of, of a company. I mean, the same thing happened with Sega. You just see different companies make the same mistake over and over and over again. It makes sense here because they were trying to bring down the cost of their hardware and software to get into the home market. But when the Saturn does the same thing, 10 times better with like zero load time. What did the CD retail at? The CD retailed at something like 400, but the games were a lot cheaper than the cartridges. They were like 50 to 60 bucks as opposed to like 200 to 300 for a cartridge. And that, and that was what year did that come out? That would come out in 96. <sighs> mm. <laughs> I feel I feel like they should have been... <laughs> 1X in 90... <laughs> maybe, maybe my <laughs> CD timeline is off, but I really feel like that's too late for 1X. That is definitely too late for 1X. It literally just killed the system. Like, nobody wanted to play a fighting game where you had to load for two minutes between every round. Other drives that came out then, they're, you know, they're, they're 8X. They're like, I mean, these are like PC ones. I get that differences, whatever, but like, yeah. And also that makes it harder to burn these games nowadays. They, they were not thinking about pirates in 30 years. <laughs> you would think that Neo Geo, of all places, should be thinking about the pirates. <laughs> the game library that literally fits on a thumb drive. Yeah. But by the time the dust had cleared in the air from the mess that was the Neo Geo CD, SNK executives were already neck deep in a much bigger problem. The launch of the Hyper Neo Geo 64. Designed as a follow-up to the blockbuster MVS arcade platform, the Neo Geo 64 was designed to be a state-of-the-art arcade platform for 3D games, similar to Sega's Model 3 or Namco's System 22. Released in 1997, the system turned out to be an unmitigated disaster. A grand total of seven games were released for the platform, mostly 3D variants of 2D franchises such as Fatal Fury, Samurai Showdown, and Beast Busters. Due to SNK's lack of experience in 3D design, the games were widely panned and a planned home console version of the Hyper 64 was quickly abandoned. 
Ports to the PlayStation, Saturn, and N64 were dismissed internally due to the differences between the Hyper 64 hardware and the home consoles. So they made a 3D board for the arcade, they didn't know how to program, and couldn't port to home systems. Pour one out for the homies at SNK. I, <laughs> God, everything about what they were doing right was like this super intricate, like finely detailed sprite work that you can't get anywhere else. And like they fell victim just like everyone else did to like oh, 2D games. We can't be doing not not in this economy. Not us, the best 2D game developers in the world. <laughs> like, keep in mind, Capcom had kind of moved on to their Versus series at this point in time. And, you know, people were not hyped about Street Fighter 3 when it was coming out. So, you know, the late 90s kind of were owned by SNK. People weren't into Street Fighter 3 when it came out? <laughs> they wanted E-Honda, my man. There was no E-Honda. Yeah, I mean, I I say I'm like I'm like the, those people are idiots. But then when I see the Street Fighter Six roster doesn't have Dudley, I'm like, fuck this game. I'm not playing this. <laughs> Part of the failure of this hybrid Neo Geo 64 system was actually in the design of the system itself, which turned the previous universal cartridge system into a much thornier process, which often required arcade proprietors to purchase additional peripherals and hardware as opposed to just plugging in a cartridge. SNK's 2D games continued to show up on top of the Japanese arcade charts, but the company's hot new product and future design plans were totally dashed by January 1999. Bariki 1, a unique MMA-style hybrid fighting game, is an absolute overlooked masterpiece and pretty much the only Hyper 64 game worth your time. If you're interested in playing it, it'll cost you about $600 for the cartridge and the motherboard about $1,500. What's the uh, emulation scene for the 64? Not good. MAME is, I think, the best option right now. It handles Bariki 1 okay and does not handle the other games too well. The two Samurai Showdown games are not bad in any way, but Bariki 1 is like, that is a wild-ass game. It's a fighting game where there are two movement buttons, and they are move left and move right, and then the arcade stick is basically what you do to do your moves. So, like, tilting up does a punch, tilting down does a kick. You do, like, lots of intricate motions to do dodges and, and sidesteps and, in a 3D environment. Like, it's wild to play once you get your hands on it, but I've only seen it in the wild once. That sounds awesome. I'm shocked the Galloping Ghost didn't have that. The Hyper 64 is not very well beloved. I don't think there are a lot of good memories of it. When I played the Hyper 64, it was in Morocco, of all places. Finally, SNK let out a little death rattle in the form of the Neo Geo Pocket, soon after the Hyper 64's failure. While the arcade business was still treating SNK well at the time, the company's leadership strived to move into new markets and saw the 10-year-old Game Boy as easy prey. Handheld games had always been increasingly profitable for game companies, but Nintendo basically had an exclusive market with few real competitors at the time. The little black-and-white Neo Geo Pocket launched in 1998 and saw immediate success in the form of selling out of its initial launch distribution on the same day. That's all the KISS systems and all the games. The next day after that launch, Nintendo announced the Game Boy Color, and SNK's fortunes went into a death spiral. Feeling the competitive pressure, SNK rushed a follow-up to the Neo Pocket out the door. The original model never left Japan and was discontinued within a year of its launch. But, you know, for all of you out there who, out there who feel like the, the underdog really got betrayed here by Nintendo, don't worry. <laughs> the, 
thegame.com is not far off or maybe it, or maybe it has already come out and that's why that's why i mean everybody's everybody remembers their, their where they were when they first got their game.com that's right i certainly remember it was 2018 <laughs> not a healthy time in my life oh my god why am i now looking up game.com on ebay don't don't <laughs> The Neo Geo Pocket Color, the follow-up, was released in 1999 to widespread acclaim, but was only sold online in the U.S. for the first few months of its availability, all but ensuring that video game retailers would refuse to find shelf space for this brand new, unproven, non-Nintendo machine. They sold it online only in 1999. That's why I never heard of it. I'm I'm honest, I'm so mad that I never heard of it. Because <laughs> I've... I, I've I've held two of yours now and they feel amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, th- this is why like secretly, secretly your other one's been done for for months now, but I've just been playing it. So <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's it's got to be a little long. I'm the, the mechanic taking your Lamborghini out for a joyride. Oh, you know, <laughs> you know, it's got, we're waiting on parts. Now, here's the funny thing that happened. SNK kept making games for the system and kept creating business relationships between companies like Capcom, Namco, and Taito. And eventually, the system began to find wider distribution in both Japan and the U.S. by 2000 and 2001. Unfortunately, the mess around the launch of the system drove a lot of those developers away. And so those developers may have created a handful of games and then just basically skedaddled, which doomed the pocket to the dustbin of history. There's an exclusive Sonic game on that system. There's a, I think I believe a Pac-Man port. There's a lot of wacky stuff that you may not expect on a handheld. I love my Neo Pocket, and if you get the opportunity to just touch one, if you just get to move that little stick around, like that is, that'll be enough, guaranteed. It feels better than most other things, like for real. A thumbstick that small with micro switches is wild. Yes, <laughs> eight of them too. One game released in 2001 for the Neo Geo Pocket Color has a title I would like to point out to the audience. Patchy Slot Aru's Kingdom E-Cup. Released in early 2001, this game and its neighbors in the same series would come to symbolize a deep internal power struggle at the game developer. You recognize Aru's from earlier as the charming pachinko company led by its charismatic founder, Kazuo Okada. Okada's company had long held a decent-sized stake in SNK's capital, represented by Aru's employees regularly holding board-level positions in SNK from 98-99. Sometime in early 2001, Okada's company decided to perform what's known as an outright hostile takeover of SNK via a practice known as a board rebellion. The full details are somewhat unclear, but allegedly, a majority of SNK board members who had ties to Aruz called an emergency meeting to discuss SNK declaring bankruptcy in early 2001. This hostile majority of shareholders then approved a full sale of the company to Aruz, giving complete control of the company's business decisions to its biggest investor. SNK's president and founder, Mr. Kawasaki, was removed from his position and took an enormous number of executives and game designers with him in the protest. Aruz now controlled SNK's assets and intellectual property and assumed all of its debts. Whatever bankruptcy proceedings were discussed prior to this takeover were now being rushed through court by Aruz with different terms. Their goals were clear. They wanted to sell the company's catalog and IP, then put the company into bankruptcy so that it does not have to pay the debt. The company filed for a process known as court-mandated rehabilitation, which is a type of bankruptcy, on April 2nd, 2001. 
So they acquired its debts because of the hostile takeover and put it into bankruptcy so they didn't have to pay the debts. But they didn't own the company before. They wouldn't have had to pay those debts. Right. But what they could do is sell a ruse SNK's IP for no money, which is what they did. Oh, I see. Believe me, they did. That's how they get you. <laughs> That's how they get your multi-million dollar game development company. <laughs> it's a tale as old as time. I was unable to confirm the following figures with official filings, but an unverified article found on the Neo Geo forums, oh boy, which is actually hosted at RetroGames.com, claims to translate a Japanese financial newspaper. And that newspaper indicates that SNK's debts at the time were 38 billion yen, or around $282 million. And that sounds like a lot of money, but it's really not. And, and that's kind of creepy if you think about it. Companies like Apple have gone through similar bankruptcy proceedings and came out on the other side. Apple filed in 1997 for a $150 million debt and is still around today, more successful than ever. Marvel filed for bankruptcy in 1996 for $365 million. And I'm sure you all know what Marvel's been up to in the last decade or so. The Twinkie people went through an $860 million bankruptcy. And you know... I'm pretty sure y'all can still buy Twinkies. What happens when these bankruptcies are declared is that there is a call for investors to swoop in, feed money into the company, and try to build it back up. How did the Twinkie people rack up almost a billion dollars in debt? <laughs> <laughs> a very inefficient factory system. I like the business person who's like, yeah, this, this company is a billion dollars in debt. But they make those cakes that kill you early. <laughs> like, we should definitely get in on this. The business is open, baby. Now, let's zoom out a bit from bankruptcy discussion. $282 million is actually a shitload of money like to, to normal people like you and I. <laughs> to the point where it's almost impossible for the human brain to conceive understanding how much money is being exchanged when they're just sitting there, you know, pressing buttons and getting Samurai Showdown in return. A lot of these companies have a lot of fucking money. And... SNK was never the most comfortable or the most successful, and that's still a lot of money. Now, keep in mind, if y'all had a personal bankruptcy, you wouldn't be given any sort of leeway. You'd just be eating shit. This only applies to high-scale corporations where there's a lot of money flying around. And Aruz's plans didn't even allow for the sort of like corporate and venture capital saviors to come in and invest in the company. Their game plan was literally to strip the company of its assets and then kill it straight up. It did not ask for assistance, cancel all of assistance, and SNK's initial claims for assistance that were filed at some point in time in early 2001, Aruz decided to just not submit any forms for, and it was thrown out in court. Oof. We're speaking of essentially the death of this company at this point in time, through the years of 2001, and I think it's interesting because the Neo Geo forums, which is essentially the biggest fan community for SNK and Neo Geo at the time, are still posting while this is going on, and the archives and records of those posts are still available at the website, meaning we have a front row seat for how people were handling this news. If you look at the time, especially in 2001, every new thread is basically a new rumor that SNK is going out of business. Because none of this shit was known at the time. It only came out in court after the fact. I have a quote here from Poster1, who was a, uh, a very passionate SNK fan, let's say. Mike, I think you want to inhibit the character. <laughs> SNK was never a company to sell out. They always focused on the hardcore gamer, never cutting corners to make street date or give the masses what they want so we can keep going to the bank. They <laughs> have 
always introduce some of the greatest characters, the greatest games, ideas, and artwork that wasn't made for Doug down the street. <laughs> they were made for us, people who see their work as art and not just another fix. So what does this all mean to me? Who's Doug? Yeah, fuck Doug. This wasn't made for Doug. We are smoking Doug here at the Game Crimes headquarters. <laughs> this is the funniest thing in the world to me, that like people are looking at financial news from 2001 and posting that. <laughs> I think the first reply to this post sums it up even better. It's like a fucking wake in here. The SMK fan base perhaps more than any in gaming, was deeply passionate, often to the point of obsession. Keep in mind that these were people who had a lot of disposable income. Each new SNK game ran the purchasers a cool two to $300 if they could find it, and regularly fed into that same machine because SNK released a lot of games. There's a real link between fandom and obsessive materialism, one that no media could ever really escape. You know, when I worked at a retro game store, we used to joke about the Neo Geo people all the time. They're just, you know, six-figure computer programmers and finance managers who would pull up to the store in a, a fresh Lambo with a press suit and buy a fucking anime wall scroll. <laughs> at the time, the popular website genre of look at this weird fucking person had helped the Neo Geo forum achieve its most popular post of all time. A middle-aged salaryman stripped bare to his boxers rolling various Neo Geo cartridges across his nude body. He dances in front of the camera to the pet shop boys blown through a garbage speaker, occasionally tweaking his nipples or bending over to show his bare ass. The collection he shows off is believed to be complete, today worth approximately $250,000. Mike, I would like to present to you, please, a timeline of SNK's death and resurrection. I'd love to hear it. Excellent. I've dug deep into the Neo Geo forums and the Wayback Machine and a billion newspapers, journals, etc. to try to put together an approximation of exactly what occurred during Aruz's takeover of SNK. If I present a claim that I have not been able to verify with multiple sources, I will call it out. December 1999. SNK enters into a broader partnership with Aruz, with Aruz providing funding in exchange for profit sharing on some of SNK's larger titles like Metal Slug and King of Fighters. Some sources from the Neo Geo forums claimed that Aruz had purchased 50.1% of SNK's holdings by December 1999. I couldn't find anything official to back up this claim, but the partnership and the profit sharing definitely existed. So it's a little more than just like these guys own a couple of pieces of stock. Quarter 1, 2001. SNK's annual report opens with significant losses, slightly rebuffed by the surprising success of the Neo Geo Pocket. The Hybrid 64 and Neo Geo projects, unfortunately, had totally drained the company's coffers and basically threw any future development plans in the trash. February 2001. According to claims made by Aruz in the SNK versus Aruz court filings, the president of SNK began the process of taking SNK into bankruptcy under the auspices of the Japanese federal government for giving their debts. This is somewhat common in countries with strong protectionist laws. 
you in the U.S. might be, know it as the phrase "too big to fail." I have too big to <laughs> fail tattooed on my ass. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> April two thousand one, top executives of SNK began to sour on their relationship with a ruse. The lawsuits claim that a ruse began to manufacture pachinko and gambling products with SNK's intellectual property while providing zero licensing fees and zero profit sharing. This culminates in what reports at the time nickname the March of Death. At least five of SNK's board members were replaced by Aruz members, and an aggressive austerity plan was reached. The president of SNK left in reaction, taking board members and significant numbers of staff with him. This phenomenon is so familiar in larger finance capital that it has a nickname, a boardroom coup. For instance, Steve Jobs tried one and failed. So take that, egghead. April 2001, SNK formally files for rehabilitation bankruptcy, a plan that would entreat the federal government to forgive their debts. The new Aruz-led leadership, eager to dismantle the company, refused to submit any documentation for the bankruptcy, and SNK is deemed non-compliant by the bankruptcy court. How did they get the filing done in the first place? Why would they even allow that filing to go out? You have to do the filing months ahead of time. That predates you, you the takeover? Up. Getting material together for a bankruptcy process like that can take months. And while the company is in the middle of deciding what to do and how to proceed and you know what to submit, that's when a ruse takes over. So they're in the middle of trying to put material together for the court, and then a ruse just denies to send anything for basically the purposes of causing the bankruptcy to fail. The Aruz-led SNK discontinues production of the Neo Geo Pocket Color despite having several dozen games in development. Key licenses such as Metal Slug, Samurai Showdown, King of Fighters, and others are sold to Aruz for little to no pavement. Unproven development companies such as Noise Factory, Brezasoft, and Eolith are now attached to develop for SNK's licenses instead of SNK's developers. October 2001. A suit is filed in Japanese federal court on behalf of the shareholders and board members of SNK against Aruz, alleging damages of 27.5 billion yen, or $205 million. SNK's former executives are called to bankruptcy court. And according to arcade trade magazine Amusement Press, SNK was ordered to report its establishment plans to the court of Osaka by 928, but could not present its writings due to conditions. As a result, the Osaka court ruled on 10-1 to revoke SNK's application for rehabilitation bankruptcy, sending an administrative order and appointing an assignee for legal purposes. Once the overturn of SNK's rehabilitation bankruptcy is settled, bankruptcy is scheduled to be declared formally. A stockholders meeting for SNK has been scheduled by Aruz on 10-11 to appoint 10 of their employees as new SNK executives. Aruz is currently SNK's major stockholder with a 50.9% share. SNK's latest game announcement with Eolith, The King of Fighters 2001, will be released as scheduled. No details have been announced as to its new distributor. October 27, 2001. A poster on the Neo Geo Forum claims that the rights to SNK's intellectual property and a new company called Playmore, headed by a relative of the former president of SNK, had beat out several other bidders, such as Aruz and Capcom, to begin rebuilding the company in the wake of Aruz's takeover. The rights went to auction as part of the bankruptcy court. The rights would eventually be turned over to the former president of SNK, Mr. Kawasaki. I was unable to confirm these proceedings, but it does seem accurate to assume that Playmore secured the vast majority of SNK's properties, including its key franchises and the Neo Geo game, based on what it had published after the state. How would you feel about a Capcom takeover of 
of Neo Geo IPs. I honestly would feel pretty damn good. Capcom and SNK are on the same street. They would go out to dinner with each other on a regular basis. They were rivals, but they were friendly. And that's why they had those crossover games come out. When Arus took over SNK, the people who left SNK and didn't come back all mostly went to Capcom. But there's no guarantee that they would have continued making 2D games the way that SNK did, because Capcom got out of that business around like 2002. 2002. A handful of games are released for the Neo Geo system. So we have games being made again. This case from Playmore. January 2003. A post on the Neo Geo forum indicates that the SNK US division had been working with law enforcement to allegedly investigate SNK's two US distribution partners, Apple Industries and Sun Amusements. The post seems to indicate that Arus had essentially sold the rights to manufacture SNK's games illegally, turning a formalized plant procedure into a bootlegging ring. Information on this incident is scant, and I can't find anything to verify it, but it is repeated several times throughout the So now, next time next time you think about buying that new iPhone. That would rule if it were that Apple though. <laughs> but yeah, like Aruz sells the rights to manufacture SNK games to companies that don't know that Aruz doesn't have the right to do that. And they put hundreds and thousands of Neo Geo cartridges onto the market, technically without any formal approval. Whoops. That's very funny to me. <laughs> That's very fucking weird, right? <laughs> Stop doing that! SNK's Playmore. Playmore at this point in time had basically become SNK again. They rehired all of their staff members, etc. By 2003, was back making games for the Neo Geo and distributing them, but were still dealing with bullshit from the Saru's deal when they realized that like, literally their US arm was completely like knocked out stupid because of the decisions Saru's made. So they kind of had to rebuild from scratch. Speaking of, July 2003... SNK's U.S. division head, Ben Herman, sits down with gaming website Gaming Age for an interview. In the interview, Herman states the following. Mr. Kawasaki, the owner of SNK, started a company called Playmore and moved back into the original building that SNK was in. Most of the staff are former SNK employees, but some programmers did go to Capcom. He further clarified that many of the programmers responsible for SNK staples like King of Fighters, Metal Slug, etc., are currently working with Playmore. To quote Ben Herman, Playmore is SNK, and I want to make sure our readers know that. He went on to say, we had 2% of the handheld business and my goal was to reach 10%. When we exited the market, we left retailers happy. We are in a much better financial position than summer 2000. Playmore started in Pachinko and made a very nice income from that first and will continue to do that in that category. It's important to take care of the SNK fans. I'm not going to do this for one year and not make it. This time it's for real. This time it's forever. Forever, uh, eh? <laughs> yeah. I want to take a, a brief appreciation for the idea of SNK getting like railroaded essentially by a predatory investment company and deciding to basically do a Keystone Cop move and like buy all their own IP and then just <laughs> restart their company and give it a different name. That's that's some real Bugs Bunny shit right there, you know? They got a clapper. They're like, take two. And then this is going to feel real good. October 2003, according to a press release found in an archived version of the SNK Playmore website in 2004, SNK entered further litigation against Aruz for producing pachinko machines using SNK intellectual property to the tune of 6.54 billion yen, or an additional 47 million in damages. SNK wins this case against Aruz in January 2004 and promises to continue filing future cases for further damages. So basically, they just stretched 
this case against DeRue's out for years and years and years and bled them for millions of dollars. I can't understand the idea that, like, a pachinko machine based on a certain IP would, like, in any way draw you towards that machine. I mean, I, I, it does because they do it mm-hmm. and they must be making money off of it. But it's just, I, can't, I can't imagine be like, oh, this one's Metal Gear. I'll truly get the Metal Gear experience. I guess it works, though. I mean, fuck, pachinko is so successful, dude. It's, it's hard to ignore. Watch me. July 2004. As a part of an interview on gaming website Spong, a few SNK Playmore executives outline exactly how the Aru suit washed out. The website's no longer available, but an archived version of the interview can be found on the Internet Archive. To sum it up, the executives confirm that SNK Playmore now owns all of SNK's property and would continue to do so. So that's the end of the story of the Aru's v. SNK fight. And it's like, all's well that ends well. Right? SNK is free of this company that kind of put it out of business and is even finding some sense of justice in the court system. Did Aruzot uh, still own the SNK trademark, even though they didn't own the IP? They basically had no claim in court because the court had determined that Aruz did not act with the company's best interests in mind, and therefore its claims were forfeit. Gotcha. Um, Playmore would continue to go by Playmore for a long time, but it was SNK or SNK Neo Geo, I believe, by like 2005 or 2006. It was real fast. I think they actually just formally changed their name back to SNK in something like 2016. That's the story of Aruz and SNK. And that's a pretty simple story, if you don't mind, Mike. I'm about to take this train off the rails and drive directly into the center of the fucking earth. I wish you would. It all began in 94, and found rolling in 95. She's where places. Hi there, everyone. I know it's been a minute since we last released an episode, and a whole heck of a lot has happened in the outside world. But before I start winding up my fastball, we need to slow down a little bit first and talk about conspiracy theories. I'm here for the games, you're yelling helplessly. I'm here for the games! But we are here for the games, too. You're crying into the void. We're kissing the void. We're not the same. We, you and I, live in a world controlled and defined by conspiracy theories. I did not say that the world is run by conspiracies, because there's a big difference. Conspiracies do exist. They really do. They sure as heck do. But not in the way that a lot of people imagine. Sometimes shadowy groups or greedy corporations or government agencies do bad things and tell a story to cover it up. I'm not going to get super heavy into it, but here are a handful of random, real-life conspiracies that can be proven via the existence of state documents and independently verified by credible journalists. Operation Condor, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, Propaganda Douay's connections with Banco and Braziano, the Gulf of Tonkin's second attack of COINTELPRO being discovered through a burglary of FBI offices, the business plot of the 1930s, the AMIA bombing in Argentina. It's a long-ass list, and it's honestly as long as history is. So the question is, what's the difference between a real conspiracy and a conspiracy theory? 
there's a lot. If you're unfamiliar with the conspiracies I've laid out earlier, you wouldn't be alone, because you don't notice any of the telltale signs of whack shit. There's no magical drug made from baby brains, there's no migrants subverting the country from in their mole tunnels, and there's no New World Order shock troopers force-femming powerful men at gunpoint. Baby Brain X isn't real? I'm against ingesting baby brains. I'll say it. <laughs> They're coming after you for this one. Conspiracy theories are a particularly unpleasant strain of folklore, seeking desperately to understand the actions of those very high up in power. The problem is that most of these theories are just simply regurgitated anti-Semitism. It's just a big pile of dog barf reflected through a kaleidoscope. The most destructive piece of conspiracy theory was written a hundred plus years ago, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This book, likely written by a Russian intelligence agency, proposes a world where an international cabal of businessmen, all who happen to be Jewish, control the world's government, finance, and media while slurping up baby blood to gain magic powers. It's just as dumb as it sounds. But it, being dumb doesn't preclude it from being dangerous. Is this slurping up baby blood? Apparently, a part of the world conspiracy is that the richest people in the world drink baby blood to to live longer. Oh yeah, no, that's that's verified. That's one hundred percent. That's that's gotta yeah, be. There's true. a direct correlation to the amount of baby blood ingested and like net worth. You can look it up. There are notable strains of this particularly anti-Semitic writing present in clan mythology, anti-vaxxers, Ketubist terrorist propaganda, 4chan memes, QAnon, UFO nut culture. Christian separatist literature, hotep bookstores, there's like a billion other examples. And if you grew up in the Midwest like I did, or basically anywhere in this country, you've probably seen it in some form. It's desperation and it's cruelty. It often just looks like racism, hatred, and bigotry. Conspiracy theory culture has been really eating at the edges of reality as long as I've been alive. It's, it's very hungry, too, right now, between the vaccine shit and people screaming at school board meetings and Nazis getting streaming platform views and having an audience. Here's why I wave around my resume a little bit. I am technically speaking, and it gives me hives to say this, an information professional. And distilled down, my job is to sort massive amounts of data into easily understood stories. The data might be out there, but how that data is arranged really does matter. And Fighting dangerous conspiratorial beliefs isn't as easy as just, like, Googling to fact-check something or announcing that you're just going to stand by the truth. Everything in our culture is moving, and that goes double for information. We are not presenting this story as some universal objective sense of history. We're trying to grasp at understanding what goes on in the halls of power. Think about the money totals in this story. Millions and billions of dollars. SNK's Rise and Fall is one of many video game stories that dance on the outskirts of the conspiratorial world. Google the phrase Jeffrey Epstein, Bobby Kotick, and you'll get the picture. The difference for SNK is that it happened in the open. We have receipts. The details went through the court system, and everyone's ledgers were thus thrust into the sunlight. That's very unusual. A lot of receipts get destroyed in the world of international business and finance. This is just one story of corporate crime in the gaming industry. And one of many. Given what we know about Aruz and Okada, it's not hard to find stories like it in pachinko and gambling and console gaming and sports, etc. Crime isn't interesting to me because it's dangerous or exotic. It's interesting to me because it helps define the barriers and boundaries in our societies. Barriers and boundaries that will often be defined in one's head 
by conspiracy theory bullshit and absence of anything else. Now, I'm going to start talking about some crazy shit when it comes to Aru's, Venture Capital, and SNK's new owner very soon. And in many cases, the blank spots in this history have already been shoveled over by conspiracy bullshit. But the thing is, we don't need conspiracy theories to explain rich people doing shady rich people stuff. They just do it out in the open. Any info I present from now on has been already gathered by real journalists doing real work. I don't think I'll ever be able to look at SNK or Saudi Arabia or a pachinko parlor ever again. But that doesn't mean I'm not down to play pachinko or KOF. Those things are fun. And as shady as this industry might be sometimes, being shady in industry is hardly unique in modern society. What is unique about pachinko, though, is the role that it serves in Japanese society as a game that matters culturally. And what's unique about SNK is the incredible back catalog of vivid and electric video games. Have you ever played Pachinko? Because I have, and it was pretty fun. No information about the world and the people who run it can really change that. So let's go to SNK in 2022, and it's time to get your tinfoil hat ready. SNK puttered along in the mid to late 2000s, releasing arcade games, console games, pachinko machines. Pachinko was the company's primary moneymaker, but this was a strange time for SNK. The 2D fighting game genre's premature death was celebrated in the early 2000s, but by the time SNK found its footing again, 2D fighting was back, and highlights of SNK's output at this time are its fighting games. Games like King of Fighters 11, King of Fighters 13, King of Fighters Maximum Regulation Impact A. There's a lot of KOF going on, is what I'm saying. But in March 2015, Chinese web and mobile game developer 37 Games, alongside finance firms such as Orient Securities and Lado Millennium, secured an 81.25 stake from SNK's founder and president. For what everything I've seen reported, this was a mutually agreed upon business relationship. And 37 Games' ownership period was a bountiful one for SNK. New games in the King of Fighters and Samurai Showdown series were released, and the mobile belt scroller KOF All-Stars is a genuinely hilarious and fun game. I don't, but, uh, I don't know if I'm familiar with that. It's kind of like Final Fight on your phone, but all the levels are like 30 seconds long. And that sounds awesome. It's pretty great, and they have, like, the craziest crossovers ever. You can play as John Cena. Let's go. <laughs> That's pretty rad. <laughs> All right, I'm into it. Let's look at 2018. SNK added a character named Najad in a stage based in Riyadh. Manga Productions is a subsidiary of the nonprofit capital development arm, which is called the MISC Foundation which is an arm of the Saudi Arabian government. MISC is short for Prince Mohammed bin Salman bin Abdulaziz Foundation. Hold on to that name. Keating out from Aruz's shadow took a decade plus of swings and misses. And even after all that, it still took investment from new capital firms to really help SNK get back on its feet. I can't say with any certainty that Mike and I could really illustrate to you the differences between being owned by Aruz 
versus being owned by 37 games other than what's in the press. But I think it is very telling that even companies with millions of dollars in assets are still powerless to these broader finance markets. There's just too much money for smaller companies to compete. One thing we can do is use a ruse and its chairman as an example. As a report on the Neo Geo forum from The Stinger, God, I love, I'm so happy I got to say that. A ruse is just an example of a company doing this, not an exception, quote unquote. For many in the Japanese amusement sector, a ruse represents a loose cannon. The company having already lost one lawsuit, as reported in trade journal Game Machine, a ruse is no stranger to legal assaults being recently successfully attacked by a pachinko operations regarding a purported assault on their reputation by comments made by a ruse's president. This was directed at video game developer Sammy. The failure of a ruse's executive board, showing a startling inability to handle themselves at such a vital point in this company's history, resulted in Aruz fumbling their response to this claim in a suit that was similar to the suit proposed by ex-SNK stockholders who wanted more in their settlement. Meaning that SNK wasn't the first company Aruz tried to do this to, it's just the first one that worked. You know how we were just talking about Pachinko and its role in money laundering earlier? Well, it turns out that owning a predatory investment company like Aruz provides an endless conveyor belt of opportunities to do sketchy shit with your money. For Aruz's Okada, the charges that have stuck to him, let's make this clear, he's in prison for them right now, are all related to misappropriating funds, giving inappropriate gifts to governmental figures, bribing development corporations, and embezzlement from his own company. These are all crimes that would require the money to be laundered to be spent, cleaned up so that it can be introduced back into what they call the clear market. Okada's business practices are reflected in his offshore holdings. Kazuo's holding company was reported by the Japanese Press Weekly on April 27, 2016, to hold $54.45 million in shares in an offshore islands. The same article reports that Japanese foreign investment in the Cayman Islands, known as one of the world's major tax havens, reached about 66 trillion yen at the end of 2014. Of the top 50 Japanese companies by market capitalization, 45 have opened 354 subsidiaries in these offshore tax havens. So not only is this company Aruz and its founder doing shady shit and fucking with SNK, but they're taking millions and millions of dollars outside of the economy and essentially storing it illegally in tax shelters. Cayman Islands is another place where no shady stuff ever happens. It's the, it's the most above-the-board place in the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, like... That's kind of crazy to me, because all of the crimes that he's accused of, how do you move $20 million of money, right, without someone noticing? Right. It's, right. it's almost impossible without a formal mechanism to do it, and these offshore accounts are how you do it. So when I talked about these things getting a little big and a little conspiratorial, what I mean is that this problem is bigger than video games, and that just in seeing this case, this one case, we can see where money in games comes from and what figures are the ones throwing that money around? Let's talk about tax havens a little bit. It's not a harmless crime. Billionaires hoarding money has an enormous impact on our day-to-day -day lives. And we may not have this information, any of this information, about these offshore accounts without the assistance of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. The ICIJ released three separate troves of leaks from these offshore companies. And the amount of money taken out of the quote-unquote clear economy and placed into the dark economy is flabbergasting. These leaks were known as the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, and the Pandora Papers. So could you give me like a basic gist of what you might know about it from 
from just kind of like common knowledge? Yeah, the only thing that I know about it is that it implicated a lot of people and or companies in mm -hmm. uh, some shady financial practices, but I don't have any of the details. A law firm that worked to set up these trusts and these these endowment firms in tax shelters had an employee leak a bunch of documentation where it was revealed that you know a lot of world leaders, for instance, had a bunch of money off the books that they kept in these private tax shelter accounts. A lot of celebrities, a lot of like athletes and um, Shakira, for God's sake. Oh my like, gosh, not, not Shakira. Not Shakira. How could you do it? When, when asked for comment, she said, <laughs> So I have a quote from McClatchy that should impress upon you the importance of cracking down on this kind of shit. There are an estimated of 10,000 hedge funds operating around the world with more than $2 trillion in assets under management according to the most recent estimate from the Hedge Fund Association. About two-thirds of global hedge fund assets are from institutional investors, such as pension funds and nonprofit endowments. But the rest come from rich individuals who have favored them for the chance to double-digit returns. Problem is, since 2009, hedge funds overall have trailed stock market returns, and they netted a loss last year. The U.S. Treasury Department, concerned about criminals and corrupt foreign officials laundering illicit money, is trying to crack down on anonymous purchases of luxury homes in South Florida and New York through offshore companies. Yet, hedge funds that are structured as offshore companies, or accept offshore companies as investors, receive less scrutiny. Offshore companies with fake directors or secretive ownership structures can still be used to invest in offshore hedge funds. And that raises a lot of questions about who is watching them. Meaning, essentially, you could set up a fake company with a fake staff and a fake president, fake books, and there's not much within the U.S.'s regulatory structure to do about that. That money just gets plugged right back into the system as is. Basically laundering all sorts of cash for all sorts of dirty folks. If the economy as a concept can be distilled down to money moving around a lot, then removing massive amounts of capital from the economy to store in off-site tax havens where it's not being spent has a cumulative effect of driving up inflation and starving nonprofit services like public schools, libraries, and food banks. In the case of the U.S., hoarding this money offshore has fed directly into the real estate market, driving up the costs of housing and rent for the average person. Take Miami, for example. The nation ran an excellent piece in 2013 that is now only hosted on the Wayback Machine, entitled Miami, Where Luxury Real Estate Meets Dirty Money, by Ken Silverstein. And he explains pretty succinctly how a city's loosely regulated luxury real estate services serves as a money laundering mechanism. The real estate industry is more lightly regulated than financial institutions. Banks are required to file a suspicious activities report with the Treasury Department if they suspect a client is depositing or transferring corrupt money. Real estate agents and title insurers are exempt from that requirement, as are businesses that primarily sell luxury goods such as jewelry, yachts, and private planes, which makes property an especially attractive vehicle to money launderers. He also drops the baffling statistic 76% of condo buyers in Miami pay cash for their homes compared to 32% nationally. Like I pay cash for mine. I mean, you you, know, you don't have to buy them all that often. There's what, like you know, 10 in a box. I don't understand. Yeah. Are you talking about Twinkies again? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Twinkies. <laughs> that's what, that's <laughs> what we call them. <laughs> so you've got this luxury housing market. You've got money essentially coming in from these offshore sites and you have a poorly regulated industry that is frequently intertwined with these offshore sites. It's affecting a billion parts of a world that's really hard to see from where we're sitting.
Now keep in mind, the folks who hold this money also agree that it's important. Reporting on these holdings is very, very dangerous, as not only have significant politicians, celebrities, and investors been exposed in the papers, but also multiple organized crime organizations are using these same mechanisms to launder money through the same accounts that all the rest of the celebrities and politicians are. In 2016 and 2017, a journalist, Daphne Karuna Galizia, was investigating the Malta government's dirty money ties exposed in the Panama Papers. The same year, she was murdered close to her home through the use of a car bomb. Maltese casino magnate Jorgen French, who was also named in the Panama Papers, was ultimately tied to her death. It's getting serious, folks. It's getting sweaty in here. But, June, you might say, there were no big video game companies named in those papers. And you know what? You're dang right. But the people who invest in video game companies sure are listed in those papers. Maybe you've heard of an equity firm named BlackRock. They've been in the news cycle for the last few years for buying family homes and spiking the prices in the U.S. As tech reporting site TweetTown details, not only is BlackRock's investment arm Invitation Homes the single largest purchaser of single-family homes in the U.S., but they were also significant stakeholders in EA, Take-Two, and Activision. The same Tweak Town reports that BlackRock executives have spoke of seizing ownership of Ubisoft via a hostile takeover. This was reported in May 2022. The founders of BlackRock were named in the Panama Papers. Does that sound familiar? In order to make my point further, Mike, I've made a quick list of video game investors and firms named in the Panama Papers. You ready to go down the list? No. It's going to be a weird feeling, my friend. First of the list, of course, I have to note that Okada himself was not named in these papers. His, his holdings were reported on by Japanese press separately from these leaks. But his former business partner, Steve Wynn of Wynn Resorts, massive gambling magnate, was also named in the Paradise Papers for holding massive offshore accounts. This is the guy who was forced out of his own company for a number of sexual assaults. Let's move on to the SoftBank Vision Fund, which was named in the Panama Papers. This is a investment firm owned by Masayoshi Son, and you may know him as being one of the earliest and prominent investors in NVIDIA, the graphics card creator. We move on to the next one. A vulture capital firm known as Elliott Management and its eccentric founder are both named in the, the Paradise Papers. And at one point in time, this guy did a hostile takeover of a game retailer in the UK and Australia called Game Digital. Did a hostile takeover and put the company right out of business. I'm also bringing him up because he and his company literally bankrupted the country of Argentina. If you didn't know, you could do that. You, a private company could bankrupt an entire country. It's happened before. I, I want to know more about that, but I, I don't think that we have time to do it right now. Let's move on to the next one. The investment firm Rentech, owned by Jim Simons and Robert Mercer, both named in the Panama Papers, were some of the highest level investors in both Microsoft and GameStop. They're right there in those papers. Carl Icahn and Icahn Enterprises. You might know him for owning 13% of Take-Two at the time that GTA 5 came out. Or you might know him from resigning from the Trump administration under accusations that he was abusing federal contractor guidelines. Let's move on to Soros Funds, owned by the man George. To a conspiracy theorist you've heard way too much about. And I'm not going to frankly go into Mr. Soros because I don't really see him as that different than any of these other investors, but it's important to notice that he was named in the Panama Papers and owns a significant stake in Activision Blizzard, Games Workshop, and Zynga. Chat says this isn't way. fun anymore. <laughs> and finally, tell me the ZZT is dirty, I'm going to be so mad. 
That would be the worst, wouldn't it? It'd be like Ken from Ken's game is actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know? Do you know how many people died for King's Quest? And finally, the coup de gras, our boy Mohammed bin Salman, the guy that we've been waiting and who's been seriously just sitting here off camera the entire time we've been holding this episode. Now he's named in the Panama Papers for using his shell corporations to buy a five hundred million dollar luxury mansion and a four hundred and fifty million dollar original Da Vinci. If you're unaware of who Mohammed bin Salman is, strap the fuck in. If it's not a familiar name, you need to know that he is de facto ruler of the country of Saudi Arabia, essentially the crown prince of a royal family where the current king has had multiple reports of him being largely non-functional as a leader. Now, Mohammed bin Salman, as he's commonly known, is a lifelong gamer in addition to being the crown prince, deputy prime minister, and minister of defense of Saudi Arabia. This boy is a big fan of online games, actually, and he's even a bit of an urban legend in Dota 2, as Biz.in reports, because he dropped 40k, that's $40,000, on a Dota Battle Pass. I must not know how Dota 2 Battle Passes work. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, yeah, dog, those are $14.99, you overpaid. (laughs) It's really not that different. Like, usually the Battle Pass was like $20 for a season, and you get like some skins, maybe an announcer or something. But you could also like drop money into it to see like get a random drop, and he must have dropped forty k. <laughs> Christ! Now, internet investigators have figured out that his Steam name seems to be Perfect Devil Angel Yukio, and you can sometimes see this account commenting on items in the Steam Workshop. You may have heard of Mohammed bin Salman also from him ordering the execution of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in a gruesome scene where Khashoggi was dismembered by saw. His murder was world news, and not in such a way that reflected well on MBS. So I'm assuming you are familiar with the Khashoggi murder. It's kind of hard not to be at this point, yeah? Mm-hmm. It's, I'd say, the number one thing associated with MBS in the U.S. press. One thing I did want to bring up, what people may be unaware of, is MBS's connections to the brutal and violent war in Yemen. Yemen, which is ranked 168th out of 177 countries on the Human Development Index, has been locked in an intense conflict with MBS and his coalition. The Sauds and their allies intervened in an existing and unresolved civil war, and their intervention has led to a devastating famine in Yemen, affecting 17 million people. MBS's role in this war has been to introduce the concept of triple-tap airstrikes, which involves bombing a location, and then bombing it again to kill the first responders and medical staff, then bombing the ambulance response teams and medical facilities to ensure no survivors. The coalition have been accused of bombing civilian locations, such as weddings and funerals as well, with these tactics. As Ben Norton's article, Don't Shoot the Rescuer, U.S.-backed Saudi-led coalition likely targeting medical workers with triple-tap strikes in Yemen, I quote, The U.S. has sold more than $100 billion in weapons to Saudi Arabia in the past five years, and the Saudis have dropped cluster bombs that were made at an army factory in Tennessee, on civilian neighborhoods in Yemen, in what Human Rights Watch called outrageous and a war crime. Cluster munitions are banned in 118 countries, although the U.S. and Saudi Arabia refuse to ratify any international treaty banning them. By the way, we also refuel their airplanes when they make these bombing runs. Now, the fact of the matter is, I'm not saying this just to shock you. The list goes on and on and on and on. He's forced Lebanon's prime minister out of office by kidnapping him. He's imprisoned scores of women's rights activists. He has an atrocious record of persecution uh, against queer folks. And let's not forget, he owns Aramco, literally the world's biggest company. It's currently valued at $3 trillion. 
And that's not even including the fact that he's pissed away billions of dollars of his people's money on a fake planned city in the middle of the desert named Neon, where MBS has promised to offer its residents flying cars, robot maids, dinosaur robots, and an artificial moon. How do you keep an artificial moon to just one city? <laughs> it's got to be in orbit. and Other people are going to see it. Are you ready? Do you want to know? Yeah. Do you want to know? It is a collection of thousands of drones projecting light into the sky. On April 22nd, 2022, SMK was fully taken over by MBS's MISC Foundation, which, by the way, is a nonprofit charity. Funny how that works. They now own 96.18% of the company, according to the Middle East Monitor. Now an official arm of the Saudi Arabian government, SMK released the excellent King of Fighters 15 in spring 22 as well. Now, I wanted to write about this story not because of my love of SNK, but also to watch it all burn. I mean, have you noticed how many modern AAA game studios insist on including horrific blockchain elements? Take a look into who the capital investment firms are on that board, and nine times out of ten, you will find your answer about blockchain or any number of stupid things being pushed. It's easy to mourn SNK as a dead brand and a zombie company, and by all accounts, you would be right to do so. But SNK is just an example MBS's company also owns 5% of Nintendo, currently making him the fifth largest shareholder, according to Middle East Monitor. This MISC portfolio also includes significant ownership stakes in Capcom, Nexon, Activision Blizzard, Electronic Arts, and Take-Two. SNK isn't the past, it's the present and the future. Letting go is hard, and pouring through thread after thread after thread on the Neo Geo forums allowed me to bear witness to a community dying in real time. The last breath, the funeral, and then the wake. And that was 20 years ago. So what does the Neo Geo community look like now? After all this, it's become the realm of low-rent speculators. Games and systems have inflated to absurd costs due to collectors, and the scene is so flooded with bootlegs that most games are fake in the first place. I'd like to end this piece with a quote from the New Yorker's article on Neo Geo collecting by Simon Parkin. Last spring, a Neo Geo collector sold three cartridges to a buyer in South Korea for $45,000. Still, despite a vibrant collecting scene, no more than five people in the world own a full collection. One of them estimates that he has spent around $200,000 on Neo Geo games in the past 26 years. In recent years, counterfeit Neo Geo games have become so widespread that one collector so far has inspected more than 50 cartridges and found most to be complete or partial fakes. When a rare game becomes available, hundreds of posts appear on the Neo Geo forum. Some on the forum, however, view this with the sort of skeptical eye of a self-aware hoarder. This isn't the stock market, one Neo Geo user wrote. This is plastic clutter lowlife, and we're all casualties of nostalgia. Let's review some games, Mike. <laughs> you might have noticed I stopped talking towards the end of that because I was like, I there's nothing to joke about here. No, not really, no. Oh my god. It's the sort of story I don't think you can tell without going this far zoomed out. Do you know what I mean? If I just tell you that a company came in and took over SNK and then it didn't, big fucking deal. But when it happens to the same company three times, I don't really know what to think. I mean, I bought King of Fighters 15. I'm just as guilty as anyone else. So who's who is working on KOF 15? The SNK team. 
they rebuilt the SNK team by rehiring people who were there during the original age or, or getting people away from Capcom and modern development studios. Like, from all accounts, modern SNK is a real-ass company developing real-ass games now, which it hasn't been for 20 years, frankly. They're healthier than they've ever been, and they have a shitload of capital to do so. It leaves you, like, not knowing how to feel, because, you you know, you on the one hand, you find out all this, like, shitty stuff, and then, like, the part of myself that just really, really wants to see new, like, new updated versions of, like, properties that I love really, like, if I'm, I'm being completely candid here, really makes me want to look the other way. Like, there's a strong pull. I'm not saying that I think that that's, like, what anybody should do is look the other way, but... Uh-huh. You know, if we're just being honest about our, about my, like, my own urges. It's hard not to, like, recoil, right? It's like you said, or this old stuff being made new through the help of, you know, giant capital infusions. And this stuff wouldn't exist without these platforms or this money moving around. So we can sit here and enjoy it and appreciate it for what it is. But this stuff is so above our heads. Like, what can we even do to say no? There's no collective action. There's no, like group of people collectively making a difference it's all just there's no gamers union there's no gamers union dog (laughs) but like it it we're stuck in just individual commercial choices me buying kof 15 now is a judgment from myself as as to my morality that's not where you want to be but learning this stuff it's hard not to feel that way let's try to bring the temperature up a little bit because we've got a couple of games to review actually Oh, yeah. And now I picked intentionally some older games so that we wouldn't have to wallow in the kiddie pool of guilt. But I do think that SNK has actually been producing decent games for basically its entire existence. And you can find good stuff from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, etc. I have a billion SNK games I could recommend to you. I'm sure Mike has a few favorites. But let's get real, Mike. Is there a better game in the world than Twinkle Star Sprites? Uh, Ever? I don't think so. It scientifically like metric. Oh my god! Yeah, it's 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 so it's like I mean I I love I love shmups in general, but then like making it also a fighting game at the same time and a puzzle game and exceptional. <laughs> it's as good as Tetris. God damn it! We didn't review Tentacle Star Sprites because there's no fun in just endlessly loving something. But that said, if you want something to endlessly love, run towards Twinkle Star Sprites. You can even get it on your dang Switch. Mm-hmm. We played two games for this. Two games that I would consider SNK classics, quote-unquote, especially at the time they came out. The King of Fighters 1998 and SNK vs. Capcom Card Fighters Clash. Let's talk about Card Fighters first, actually, because we did not play that one on stream, right? I think you and I both played the recent Switch port. Excellent Switch port, also. Yeah, yes, actually. And a very decent alternative to trying to find a cartridge, which has gotten expensive. It's a Neo Geo Pocket Color game, meaning you can expect Game Boy quality graphics and audio. It's, it's like the prettiest Game Boy game you've ever seen. But ultimately what matters is the game itself. So how did you feel about the game? I mean, kind of going into this not knowing much about SNK's properties and, and kind of only having a, a glancing understanding. The nice thing about it is that it's an SNK versus Capcom. So I was able to play the Capcom side of it where I do know more about the characters. I think at the end of the day, the characters, it it's really just comes down to like pictures on the card. It's a card game where, you know, rules are written on the card for the most part. But the um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like the synergies. It seems it seemed pretty, pretty deep. There was a lot of uh, 
uh, kind of kind of deceptive because it kind of it's a it's it's your your play field is essentially a three on three. You've got three slots on either side and you can play cards in that spot. But also characters that go together can be played as like uh, as what what's the word they use? It's not like a backup. No, it is backup. It's it literally is, backup. it is backup. OK, Sakura and Ryu can both backup Ken and, and you can assign multiple things for backup, which would allow you to like essentially get more stuff on the board without compromising one of your three gameplay slots. It adds to the power of the card that you've already got on the board. You can only do it like for each care, like each character that has, has two possible backups and you can only add like one instance of each backup. So you can't be like, I'm going to throw an army of reuse on top of this card and make it super powerful. You can do a Ryu and a Sakura on top of Ken. And you're not always told what those relationships are, too. So, like, if you have a knowledge of SNK or Capcom properties, you can kind of go, like, well, who would back up Ryu? Oh, okay, Sakura makes sense. And you know what? It works. Sakura works as backup perfectly fine. Yeah. But but also, sometimes, weirdly, that knowledge doesn't help you. It's <laughs> true. Like, where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you can't use that version of Ryu because this is an this is a Street Fighter Alpha version. <laughs> and true. It, it doesn't go with this character, you know, so... Sometimes it sometimes it seems a bit nonsensical, but for the most part, it, previous character knowledge can help you out there. For sure, this game is definitely for people who know the difference between Zangief and Mecha Zangief. Like, if if those words mean anything to you, you will enjoy this game. I think. One thing I do want to say, I think that that you were right. This game is deceptively simple. You know, there are very few numbers to crunch in this game, and it definitely takes advantage of the fact that it's a digital game by having permanent damage tracking or having permanent stat changes so that you're not constantly moving or fiddling things around like you would in real life. Um, the matches themselves last 10 to 15 minutes total in general. They can go a lot slower, they can go a lot faster, but it's a pretty decent range. And even if you don't play the versus, which is a part of the Switch port, for instance, there is a single player campaign that's a good 15 to 20 hours and is a hell of a lot of fun. It is. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I really liked about the the strategy in that game is like a lot of it is blocking your character's slots. There's not a lot of easy ways to willingly take a piece off the board. And so like the way combat works, so your enemy has somebody who has a character that's 700 power. You've got one that's 600. You attack and they block. They they take that 600 damage, but that also brings their it just brings their power. There's no separate attack and defense. They just have that one number. It brings that character's power down to 100. But now, you know, you may seem like you've sacrificed a character, but now they've got a spot on the board that's taken up by a 100 uh, power character. They can't bring out something more powerful into that slot. And you can maybe use that to give yourself a little breathing room to build up a larger army before you attack again. The limited board space is such an important mechanic to the game that it can be jarring. The idea of, like, you don't do a ton in a turn. But the matches are actually pretty dynamic. They go back and forth, and there are a lot of interesting like offense and defensive decisions like Mike just outlined. Um, look, I'm not going to lie. I loved this fucking game. I loved this game from the first time I played it 20 years ago, and I have been playing it for So you're never going to hear me say a crossword. Uh, the only thing I would argue is that the sequel is even better, although it never had a formal English release. What would you say is your uh, your verdict on the, the card game there, Mike? I, was, I mean, it was awesome. I I put probably put like 30 hours into this thing. <laughs> like Frick. there was a, a brief period of time where like, you know, playing playing this on Switch where it was like, I, you know, I take my lunch breaks at work and there was like a hidden sofa that I, that like seemingly no one else knew the location of. And I would you would find me there 
for an hour every day just <laughs> blowing through this thing for like a month straight <laughs> honestly for eight dollars you can do a hell of a lot worse absolutely yeah yeah i mean the modern port of it is is I, I don't think even think we mentioned like there's two versions of the original game Mm-hmm. And the the modern port lets you do trading between those versions just on your own copy of the game. You don't need another person to do it. Um, it allows you to get a full collection basically without having to bend yourself in circles. Uh, if you have the um, the SNK versus Capcom, uh, what do you what do you call it? If you if you have that game, what, what was the full full title of that game? There's a fighting game which is SNK versus Capcom Match of the Millennium, I believe. Yes, like Match of the Millennium. If you have that, that can that cartridge could unlock. Uh, some cards, but if you've got a save file for that, it'll let you do the link up and get those cards down. I mean, it's a lot of care went into that port. Can't say enough about it. And in fact, I would uh, second that for basically every Neo Geo Pocket port on that Switch. As close as you can get is through the real thing without a clicky stick. And if anybody knows how to put a clicky stick on a Switch controller, please, please contact me. Your help is dire. We need you. Speaking speaking of like reverb from sound effects layering on top of each other, a dual clicky stick. I'm seeing visions of the future. Oh my god. <laughs> Let's move on to our second game. Now, I had a lot of fighting games to pick from, and I decided to pick the most Lay's potato chip basic flavor fighting game I could think of, King of Fighters 98. Now, you say that there's 98 on it because the King of Fighters games were kind of released once a year a la Madden with different rosters and different moves. Uh, 98 is generally considered to be the first of the KOF games that really has its shit together and really has everything in order. So this was sort of a peak as to what, you know, SNK would have been known for at its absolute height. We played it here on the stream for a good two hours. How did it treat you? It was pretty good. It was pretty good. I, yeah, you know, we had a lot of back and forth. I mean, I'm not usually a huge fan of, of like the 3v3 format, but I, I think I think it worked really well here. It certainly allows you to have a big-ass roster which I think is what the KOF games are known for. Yeah, what's the, what's the count on that? It's like 48 or something, and that's one of the smaller ones. It's honestly, like, for the time, an excellent 2D fighter. I think it stands out pretty well now as being indicative of that time. And to me, it's like a very classical 2D fighter. There's no tag fighting, right? Although that comes later in KOF. And also, the recent port of 98 to Steam has been updated with rollback in 2022, <laughs> of all things, yeah. meaning that the online play is actually pretty damn buttery Uh, we did not have a ton of problems did we no i don't think so i don't think but like i never felt like there was a is a huge advantage or disadvantage i think part of it was the part of it was the rollback but also like it seems like you can it it seems like it's pretty forgiving with buffering inputs yes yes that's very accurate so i think one of the things that to me defines kof as compared to other fighters is that you can get away with a lot in terms of inputs, it's pretty generous when it comes to throwing your down to forwards and, and dragon punches. And a lot of characters have relatively simple move sets of like three to four moves, you know, down to forward this, down to back this, and a grapple. And I would also say on top of that, normals and spacing play such a huge role in King of Fighters that you can pick up characters pretty easily without knowing their entire move list and do perfectly fine. Like Street Fighter Three, another fighting game I love. I'm sorry, but like, if you're new to that game, you should pick one character, basically. I and mean, that's Ryu. No one else. KOF, just hit random and go bonkers. You'll have fun. Yeah, that's true. So we could have recommended a billion different SNK fighting games here. Guru is excellent. Last Blade is excellent. Samurai Showdown is top notch. There's a bunch of really awkward, obscure games like Matrimele, Waku Waku 7. Magician but- Lord. 
Magician Lord, baby. Top Hunter, Heavy Barrel. Uh, Magician Lord is the altered beast of the Neo Geo. Pretty much. It was a lost title. Sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I'll fist fight any altered beast stands out there. Don't do that, dude. They turn into animals if you do that. Oh my god, wait a minute. Wait, cut that, cut that, cut that, cut that. (laughs) Do not piss off the giant fishmen. So ultimately, your verdict on KOF 98? Uh, I give it a 98 out of 100. That's a good rating, good score. All right. We can recommend both of these games, but if this episode gave you a yen to check out SNK's back catalog, just getting into the Neo Geo ROM set or buying a handful of games from a modern marketplace is a ton of fun and you can see their footprint in modern games all over the place. All right! Thank you for joining us for another episode of Game Crimes, and goddamn, it feels good to be back. In case you didn't know, Mike and I have launched a weekly Game Crimes stream. That's 11 EST, 10 CST, Tuesday nights over at twitch.tv backslash gamecrimes. We've got our roulette wheel of bizarre shit, We've got tutorials to help you with your game systems. We even did a setup video. I'm buying up VTech consoles right now. <laughs> this is this is not a drill. This is a, a direct funnel for the type of weirdness and perversion that we cannot get away with doing two hours of content worth on a podcast. So please swing by. We would love to have you, and I hope that we get a chance to show you something neat if you do. Speaking of neat shit, if you like card games, you should head on over to PoorSkeletonGames.com and buy my stinking card games. One is a murder mystery game that's so easy to learn you can play it while shit-faced, and the other is a hyper-compact number puncher that Magic and Hearthstone fans will definitely get into. It's also heavily inspired by SMK Capcom Card Fighters Clash. These are 20 bucks a piece, cheap, pretty, feature unique artwork, and are infinitely replayable. I'm also in the midst of recording the season finale for my superhero real play show, Weird Adventures in Space. Surreal sci-fi superhero comedy action show about a bunch of hapless aliens building a utopia on Mars. You can check it out by visiting SHU Podcast on your podcasting app of choice. Now, Mike, I am not going to let you out of this room until you plug Roll for Streetwise and do it aggressively. You really don't know how this works because I'm not in that room. I'm in this room. God damn it. 20 Year One is the best fucking song of the summer, and you know this shit. You, if you have not listened to this album yet, please do. I can legally say that because I didn't write it. I absolutely <laughs> agree. That song made me cry. Did not expect it. Uh, my, my, my dear friend, uh, William White, wrote that. So yeah, Roll for Streetwise is the album kind of loosely based on the other podcast I do, Greetings Adventures, uh, Dungeons & Dragons Real Play Podcast. It started as just being based on that uh, first arc. It was an absolute joy to do. We did a Kickstarter at the end of 2019. It took us until this year to record for obvious reasons. But yeah, we recorded with the band Glass Beach. If you haven't listened to anything that Glass Beach has done, you should absolutely do that. It's an amazing album. They're just a group of intensely talented people who were who allowed me to use that talent as a platform uh, as a platform to make some jokes and I, I feel super grateful to have the time have the ability to do that but it's up on uh it's up on streaming platforms you can go to album.link slash roll for streetwise the word f-o-r roll for street right streetwise it's, it's on napster you can get it anywhere title Fuck it. Wherever you, wherever you want to go. I don't judge. No, you just you're not just there for the jokes. You actually sing on that bad boy. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I do vocals for um, one, two, yeah, uh, lead vocals for one, two, three, 
three and a half tracks. Uh, one, I had a character that was very like shonen anime inspired. And so we have an anime intro that was uh, the vocals on that track were done um, by a friend of Glass Beach. Now a friend of mine as well. Uh, Nickel, I you can find her stuff at Marbit's Music. Also left at London, did some tracking on that and, uh, and some vocals as well as well. Yeah, <laughs> I, that was one of the, I didn't I didn't know that they were on there until until I heard it. It's amazing. If you haven't checked out Left at London, I I went I went and kind of did a deep dive into that catalog. It's some really good stuff. It's excellent. It, this insane range uh, of styles and energy to at one point uh oh, what's it what's it called? Like Santa Claus is homophobic, yep. I think. Yes. Oh my god. That that song is amazing. It's not my favorite, but that's not that's not me speaking negatively on that track. It's me speaking positively on the rest of their catalog. It's filled with bangers. That's a fact. And Roll for Streetwise is filled with bangers as well. Y'all need to get and check that out. For real. I loved it. Thank you. Next time, join us from GeeklyCon 2022 as we explore the legendary mashup game engine Mugen. We're remixing video games together with hip-hop history in Game Crimes Episode 8. Nobody beats the biz.